Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. To become a citizen of the United States is a very long process from what I hear and understand. Um, I know that they end up having to take a test uh, to show that they have some knowledge of different things about our nation. And uh, from what I hear, a lot of people who are citizens, naturally born citizens, a lot of people could not pass that test because it goes back and reflects on what has happened in the history of our nation, how we got started, talks about different figures and what they did talks about our founding documents, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, Bill of Rights, all these things. How, we're how our government is organized. A lot of people don't know about how our senators work or House of Representatives, but if you're going to take this test and pass it, you've got to know some of these things. And so to become a citizen, you have to know quite a bit, really, in actuality, about our nation. To be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is much different. You get in this kingdom by faith and repentance. And you really don't have to know a lot. But then once you're in this kingdom, then it's time to learn, to understand more fully about what this kingdom is about. But at the beginning to get in, you don't have to know everything. But it's assumed that you will become a learner and a follower of Jesus about the kingdom. And that's a great thing, a thing about getting in the kingdom, isn't it? Man, there's this long list of qualifications. You go, I, I can't do all this. I can't pass this test. And it's not about passing that test. It's about humbling yourself in faith, repentance, and receiving it. And then you go to work learning about what it all means. So today, we start looking at what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what you do. You repent. You put your trust in Jesus, you're in the kingdom, and you go, well, now what do I do? What do I do now? Well, Jesus tells us here what we need to do. You see here in verse 1 that Jesus goes up on a mountain, or we could say a mountainous area. We know the other passages like this is found in Luke chapter 6, and there Jesus is teaching on a plain. That's probably a plain in the mountainous area here, so it's the same occasion. And the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, is one of the five discourses of Jesus in Matthew. This course is just where Jesus goes on at length to talk about the kingdom or talk about himself. So it's a lengthy discourse. We see here in verse 1 that his disciples come to him, and the, the crowds are still here. And so probably what we need a vision is that the disciples are really gathered around Jesus closely, but then the crowds are kind of away from Jesus a little distance, just enough so they can overhear a little bit or word can be passed on to them what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is not only talking to his disciples, but as we'll see at the end of chapter 7, he's also in somewhat talking to the crowds. Jesus sitting down here like a rabbi, so it indicates that he is like, one of the rabbis of the Jews, one of their teachers, right? But it's very, very clear by now that Jesus is much more than just a teacher. Chapters 1 through 4, 
We see that Jesus had a very unique birth and a unique baptism. Now all these events were to point to the fact that this prophesied one is now here and has brought the kingdom of heaven. But the question becomes, is he just a prophet? Is he just a teacher? Is he just a healer? Or is he much more than that? What's interesting here, if you catch this, it says here in verse 2 that he opened his mouth. Well, that's a little detail, probably not worth a whole lot, right? If you're going to talk and teach, you're going to have to open your mouth, right? But it's just too close to something else to uh, miss the association. So back in chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus answers the devil, Satan, and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus opened his mouth and taught them. <laughs> somebody like Moses is here who is a teacher of his people, but it's now somebody greater than Moses coming because now Jesus' mouth is being associated with God's mouth. And this is why it's imperative that we listen to Jesus. He is God and he speaks on behalf of God. We saw at the end of chapter 4 that the main message of Jesus was the kingdom of heaven. And there were two main commands. You remember this from last week. To repent and to follow. So again, now we're trying to understand what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What are the values, the priorities, the ethics, the demands and the blessings of the kingdom? Again, once you get saved, once you're in the kingdom of heaven, you are now enrolled in the school of Jesus. He is now your teacher. And he's going to teach you what you ought to love. And that means your loves are going to have to change. He teaches you now what to desire, and that means your old desires are going to have to change. Your wants, what you pursue, what you do, all that is going to have to be overturned and transformed. The Lord's Prayer, we see how Jesus prays that he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we know from Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of heaven is now here and he's teaching his disciples. What this means is we should be able to go to anywhere around here and say, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, if you want to see God's will being done as in some sense, to a small degree, it's going to be seen all over the earth one day. Come to Emmanuel Baptist Church and you will get a little foretaste of what it's going to be like on earth forever and ever. We here are being taught to do God's will, how to be a citizen of the kingdom. And if anybody should be looking for the kingdom, where they should go to see it is a church. We're the disciples of Jesus. We're citizens of the kingdom. This is again reminds us of the great mission we have before others. When the world looks at us, and they see how we live, how we do church, they should say, they are poor in spirit. Now, they might be feeling sorry for us when they say that. They might be angry at us when they say that. 
but in our ears we hear the Lord speak. You are blessed. I delight in you. This morning we're going to look at this first beatitude. We're going to find some key ideas here, key words like blessed, the kingdom of heaven, what it means to be poor in spirit. And then we're going to talk about how do you become poor in spirit. Let's start with the word blessed. Word bless, we use that a lot, don't we? Very common word that we, in some sense, throw around in our vocabulary. We say, God bless you or Lord bless you. Sometimes we really, really mean it. and Sometimes it's kind of just in our hat and we pull it out and we use it. <laughs> or if someone sneezes, we say, God bless you. What that means is we're asking, if we're intentional about it, we're asking for some blessing or gift from God be given to that person. Now, if you ask somebody, say, how are you doing? They might say, I am blessed. What does that mean? Well, that can mean a whole lot of things. Don't know. It might just mean that life is good. <laughs> life is going my way. I'm feeling pretty lucky. Uh, it might mean I have lots of money. Life is going the way that I kind of would like it to go. Okay? Sometimes it has very little to do with the Lord and has a lot to do about circumstances. In the scriptures, sometimes people are told to bless the Lord or are commanded here to bless the Lord. And so Psalm 103 says six times that we are to bless the Lord, meaning to praise Him and to acknowledge Him with joy. And the reasons are given there why we are to do it. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and so on. And it says because of these things, then you need to bless the Lord. But then we also see where it talks about God blessing people. Okay? And then again, we have elaboration of who he blesses, why he blesses them. Psalm 1 verse 1. The Lord, through the writer there, says, Blessed is the man who. This blessing from the Lord is not available to everyone. It is very, very limited to a person who's going to do what Psalm 1 describes. 25 times in the Old Testament, we have the phrase, Blessed are, and then it talks about who the people are that are blessed. There are qualifications for this blessing. God is very merciful, more merciful than we could ever imagine. But do not ever imagine that God blesses sin or disobedience. He might be patient, or he may not be. He may even use our sin, but there is never ever, at any time, a blessing of God on sin that would violate God's holiness and justice and truth. That would go against himself, and that would be a violation of who God is. Blessed are. So this blessed means that God decides, based on his evaluation and judgment as God, being the all-knowing, all-wise God, how things will be. Who will receive these blessings? 
Nine times we have the word blessed, and it's repeated every single time. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and there's that repetition there for emphasis, declaring how the economy of the kingdom of heaven works, declaring the blessings for the citizens that they can anticipate. But also then becomes an encouragement, exhortation to practice these attributes ourselves. Very important here that as we read these Beatitudes, that we do not see these as just little extra goodies that God may give to his people. Blessed are my people, and if they do these things, I'll give them a little extra more goodies. I'll send them a little goodie bag home with them after church. Now, this is much bigger than that. In Genesis, many times we have the word blessed or bless or blessing. And that is there to indicate that God loves to bless people and put his blessing on his people. But if you know Genesis, it also talks about curses. If you talk about blessed or blessing, you also have to talk about curses. It's interesting, in Luke's version, in Luke chapter 6, he talks about blessed are those, but he also has woe to those. So Luke, in some sense, includes the curses there. There's going to be woe coming on you one day. There's going to be the judgment of God. There's going to be a cursing of God on you one day. If this is the way that you're continuing going to be. But Matthew doesn't have the curses here. Doesn't have the woes. But yes, he does. They're found at the very end of chapter 7. Tree that doesn't bear good fruit it will be cut down. To those who proclaim that they know the Lord, the Lord to some people will say, I never knew you. And then if this person refuses to listen to Jesus and his teaching, to do these types of things because of faith in Jesus, repentance in Jesus, you're building on sand. And the final storm of storms will sweep you away. There is blessed here, and there's curses. They're both here. This is about eternal stuff. Again, this is not about goodies. This is everything at stake here, what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Second of all, kingdom of heaven. Again, this is God's rule. And in the Gospel of Matthew, again, we have this phrase, kingdom of heaven, where in the other Gospels, we typically have kingdom of God. And this is because in Matthew, there is a tension between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Heaven and her earth are at odds with one another. Humanity was made by God, designed by God, designated by God to be rulers for God, right? But we have rebelled against God and we have set up or tried to set up our own kingdom. And so there's a conflict there's different values now. In a, in a small way, we could say, kind of based on the news right now, you know, between like us and North Korea, trying to have a relationship, trying to work with them, but they have a whole different set of values in North Korea. And it's hard because now we are at conflict. And nations get at conflict with one another because there's a conflict of values. How much more is the king of earth and us as vice regents, supposedly 
antagonistic toward the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, the true son of man, the true image of God, and the true image of man now is the ruler of this kingdom of heaven. Notice here in verse 3 and verse 10, it uses the word is. Verse is, verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same thing in verse 10. Notice the other Beatitudes all have the future tense. They will be. This, this will happen in the future. This first one and the last one is in the present tense. Right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but the other ones are all future-oriented. We know, again, from Jesus' previous chapter, that he was teaching about the kingdom, and he was demonstrating the kingdom of heaven was here through the miracles that he was doing. It's here. And so because verse 3 and verse 10 kind of creates like a sandwich with the present tense is, everything else is future in the middle, we have to take these all together. All of the Beatitudes fit together and therefore must be seen as one. You can't just take one out and just use it as you want. I like Beatitude number four or Beatitude number six. I'm going to focus on that one. No, they're a, they're a package deal. If you want the kingdom of heaven, you have to have the whole package. This means, again, that you cannot isolate any of these. They all work together to show who God blesses. And this also means, because is in the future tenses, that there is a component where the kingdom of heaven is here now, and it is future. You might be saying, well, that's cool. But what does that mean? Why is that so important? Because of this. As you try and follow Jesus and live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you can get easily confused or frustrated based on your experiences. Chapter 4, 23 through 25. Jesus is healing people left and right. Epileptics are having seizures in front of Jesus, and Jesus just takes care of it. Obvious demonic displays of Satan's power, and Jesus gets rid of it just like that. I mean, you talk about amazing display of power. The band is playing. Confetti from heaven is falling. There is great rejoicing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who aren't happy. But blessed are those who mourn. And the meek. And those who are really hungry and really thirsty. And those who are persecuted. Which is it, Jesus? Are we going to throw a party here? Or are we going to pretend like we're at a funeral? Which is it? It's both. Sometimes God opens the gates of heaven and just pours and streams down blessing. You go, man, God is good to my family. God is good to our church. This is amazing. This will never stop. Yes, it will probably on this earth. And God will begin to withdraw. And heaven will close up for a while. And you'll be persecuted. And you'll be hungry and you're thirsty. And you're going to say, what happened to the parade? I thought the kingdom was about a parade. No, not till heaven. That's the unending parade. Never stop then. But here right now, be careful what you expect. 
You say, Lord, I'm trying to do this, but it doesn't seem like you're really showing up. Well, read the Beatitudes. Read it. It doesn't mean that God's going to show up in every way, in a powerful way. He may choose to be very, very distant to you, and you're going to be confused and feel lonely and say, this isn't true. Oh, yes, it is. It's very true, and you can count on it. These people are blessed, Jesus saying, and those people are not because of the kingdom of earth. And you'll be confused. Who really is blessed? When you go out these doors and you start engaging people and going to work and seeing other people, you say, wow, they look really blessed. No, no, they may not be. They may not be. Not in terms that we just set up today, right? Those who are blessed eternally in the kingdom of heaven and those who are cursed. Your eyes can be so quickly fooled and your heart then begins to go that way and get frustrated with God. 10,000 times better to be blessed truly by God than falsely by man or the world. Be very careful if the world starts throwing parades for you. Be very careful. It's a dangerous thing. What's it mean to be poor in spirit? Again, in Luke's version, he has just the word poor. He doesn't have poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is more of a figurative meaning about us looking inside and our attitude with God. But poor is poor here in Luke. Okay? So this means there are people who have very little in goods. In Luke's version, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which would be very shocking to the rich of the day. So to understand what it means to be poor in spirit, we're going to have to look literally at that word to help us understand what the figurative meaning is. Okay? So I think I have two things here for us. Number one, it means we have nothing to offer the king. We've got the king of the kingdom, and we have nothing to offer him. Everything is owed to the king, but we have nothing. We are greatly in debt beyond what we can imagine, and yet we have nothing to pull out of our pockets to give to the king. Imagine, and it's going to be very, very hard. I, don't, I know I can't do it, but try. Imagine today that you lose everything that you have. Right now, my mind's in Iraq thinking about people that this literally has happened. As I shared in my stories, you know, $6 million, ISIS comes in and just takes burns houses down, okay? So you lose your job, you don't have a car, your bank accounts are taken away, you have no house, and you have no food. And you live in a shack with some others. And every day, you have to go to the corner down here, Queen Street, and you have to beg for food. Your clothes are tattered, and you have to stand there and beg and have a sign because you can't make it. And all you can do is ask for help and mercy from others. For most of us, that is just probably too far away to imagine. We're pretty used to our, our goods and our possessions. But think about it, if only you could only live by the goodness and mercy and kindness of others. How would you feel? How would you think of yourself 
Then you are summoned by the king to his palace to stand before his throne. And you have to stand before him because you're accused of wrongdoing. You're accused of stealing from the king. And you owe him and you're in debt. And you're standing for the king in all of his majesty and you're in tattered clothes. You're so hungry you can't even think straight. You're dirty and you have no money. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? Are you going to start boasting about who you are and what you've accomplished in life? Are you going to be self-assertive and self-confident in who you are and what you've achieved and accomplished in your life? Or are you just going to put your head down? Say, have mercy on me. By the virtue of God being holy, by him being the virtue of being the creator, by virtue of our sinful rebellion against him, our appropriate and continual attitude and disposition must be, have mercy, because I have nothing. Any judgment you would render of me, O king, is true, and I accept it, but I only plead for mercy there hopefully would be a recognition of your unworthiness to even be there. Your ugliness, your disgrace, your shame, and being empty. You are humiliated to stand before that king like that. And you get through those doors, and you see people, and you get on your phone, and you watch TV. Let me tell you what you're going to hear. You are something. You have really made much of yourself. Look at how you've made so much money and you've established yourself and your family and people know you and people revere you. Be proud of what you've accomplished. Advertise it. Be assertive. Put yourself out there. Make yourself known. Express yourself. Be bold with your opinions and your achievements. If you don't express it, nobody else will. How will people know and understand what you have done and accomplished in your life unless you tell them about it and unless you post it on the internet? That's the kingdom of earth. The kingdom of heaven is greatly against this kingdom. Let's be very careful as religious folk, as Matthew warns religious folk in Matthew, be very, very careful in your displays of righteousness, i.e. coming to church, putting your head down, and then walking out with your head up the rest of the week. How you think of yourself and how you present yourself to the world is how you present yourself to God. This is not just only one presentation of God. It's how you interact in the world with people and your attitude. And if you follow that worldly wisdom I just told you, that's how you're approaching the great king. Don't let we do here fool you and let us fool ourselves in thinking this is the only way I view myself is when I'm in church and I, and I humble myself. No, it's how we engage in the world every single day. Second of all, it means that we're fully dependent on the king for mercy. 
fully dependent on the king for mercy. See, this king knows everything about us. What is hidden to others is not hidden to him. And again, we have nothing to offer him. There's nothing to compensate for our debt. There's nothing to compensate for the king's loss. We've got nothing to give to him. There's nothing to impress him. There's nothing that's going to make him lenient towards us. We can't find the right words to maybe say, oh, please, just do something for me. We, we, can't, we don't have that. There's nothing. There's no options for us. We can't name drop. I got saved at the Billy Graham crusade. You can't name drop. You can't use your family name. <laughs> you have no money. And so there must be a true presentation of yourself to the king. You must be there in your tattered clothes. You must not try and fool the king by trying to borrow some nice clothes real quick so you can give a good presentation to the king. I be very, very careful about what you do in church. And then you go back to your other clothes. Don't try and dress up falsely because the king knows it all. Our only hope is not elevating ourselves falsely and covering our wrongdoings, our failures, and our emptiness. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The people whose spirits have been crushed, they are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. I don't think anybody here wants to be crushed, but you need to be. And the thing here is, what Jesus is talking about is, you have to learn to delight in it. You have to learn to delight in it. When God begins to humble you and take things away and show you your sin, you have to say honestly, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for showing me the truth. So how do you become poor in spirit? Looking back in college, I don't think we ever talked about that question. You're not going to talk about that in college, are you? Are you going to talk about this at your business meeting this week? How about in the political assembly, in the political rally you're going to have? We're going to talk today about how to be poor in spirit. No one's talking about this. The world has no time for that. They would say that's the essence of being weak and being a loser. Coming out of the 80s and 90s, we had a very strong self-esteem movement. For the most part, the church bought into it. I'm old enough to know the 80s. <laughs> and I know what was preached. I don't have to read about it just in books. I know it was preached. Heard garbage like, you can't love God until you love yourself. There's so much of that that's still part of that self-esteem movement. Perhaps in some sense, the church was teaching people to esteem themselves more than how to esteem God. Salvation in Christ, the King of Heaven, is learning to esteem and reverence God and to deal bluntly and decisively with our false esteem. Isn't that foreign spirit? Right there. 
So how do we develop this? Four things here. First of all, God's grace and the Holy Spirit. God's grace and the Holy Spirit. It is not easy to recognize that before God, you are empty, weak, and have nothing to offer him. I think we're all trying to grab a hold of it, and we're trying to think of it. Even as we talked about earlier about, imagine you've lost everything, and you live in a little shack. That's really, really hard to imagine it. I mean, for that to really happen. So it's really, really hard for a person to understand that before God, they have absolutely nothing. No bribe, nothing. And so that means that if you begin to understand that you are weak, that you uh, should be poor in spirit, and how great God is and how holy is, that, mean, that means God's grace is at work in you. God is at work opening your eyes. He has come to you, and he is at work in bringing this to the surface for you. We never act first. Any of our actions toward God come from God. And as we see his mercy coming towards us, we say, Lord, thank you. Help me develop this more and more. Any poorness of spirit anybody has is owed to God. Doesn't that fit with blessed are the poor in spirit? How could somebody rise up and say, well, you may not be poor in spirit, but I am. How could you, be, how could you have the blessing on you? That would violate it, right? You say, I didn't do this. I'm not good enough to be poor in spirit. The Lord did this. It's all of his grace, his Holy Spirit. James 1.17 reminds us there's no gift that we have that not come from God. Everything has been gifted to us. And a lot of times we only think of possessions and abilities and resources. But one of the things is that a good gift from God is poor in spirit. That's a gift. Romans 11.36, all things are from him, through him, and to him. There, I think all means all. Absolutely everything. Poor in spirit is from God, it's through him, and goes back to him. Second of all, how do you become poor in spirit? Repentance and believing and obeying. Again, we're back to these two sharp commands. Repentance and a following and believing and obeying, all that is wrapped up all together. But again, these commands and our response to Jesus has to be worked out in our lives more and more, and they go deeper into our hearts. Again, it's poor in spirit. It's not an outward, superficial thing. It's inside, internally. Verse 8 here, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus' teaching needs to be worked down deep in the fibers of our hearts. Your beginning repentance, your beginning believing, your beginning obeying is not yet completed. Not until glory. And so your repenting and believing and obeying has to go deeper and wider and bigger. And the fruit that develops as you follow Christ is going to be in the midst of testing and temptation, just like Jesus. In the midst of that, you hopefully will become more and more humbled at what God has done and is doing. The key here in these Beatitudes is to say, wow, 
It sounds like they're really important. I'm going to try and pound these into my heart one by one, like taking a nail, right? Here's the first beatitude. Grab it. I'm going to take a hammer. I'm just going to pound this in my life. Pound this. Good luck. Day one, you might get a few good strikes in there. Day two, you might get a couple ones. Day three, you're going to say, man, this is hard work. And it's not making me very popular. It's not working out very well. And you're going to throw your hammer away. You're going to throw your nails away. This is not about just taking these things individually and trying to pound them into our lives. It is a constant attitude of, I'm repenting. I see my sin more and more. That was hiding from me, but now I see it. I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey him. I want to put my trust in him. That has to get deeper inside of us. And then these things flourish like fruit. Thirdly, look at God and Christ and not man. Again, obviously what we're talking about here is not being proud or arrogant, right? Pride needs a standard. Pride needs a comparison. Pride needs a ladder to get above others. Our simple desires reflect that we want to have more than others. We want to be more known and more respected than others. And the worldly kingdom of earth teaches us to compare ourselves to others. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about car commercials on TV, diamond commercials, and probably a few others. But not only do they think that you should have them, they're saying you should have this new car, have these diamonds, because it will almost provoke envy in others. And they will show neighbors saying, wow, look at that car. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to show that you can provoke envy in other people as they look at you, and don't you want to be envied? You get that? You see that commercials? How wicked that is. How wicked that is. And yet we just we turn and show. Oh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I like that car. That is wicked to want to do something to get other people to envy you? Wow. It's not difficult to compare ourselves with others. We see poor people around. We see people maybe begging on the streets. We feel pity. But deep down, there's that voice. They just didn't do what they should have. They made some mistakes. And we get up another rung or two. We see people who made bad choices. They're in trouble. They're addicted to drugs or whatever. They say, uh, we get up another rung. You see, people who don't have our education, don't have our abilities, don't have jobs like we got. Get a little bit higher in the ladder. See people who, ah, too bad, they just don't have my Bible knowledge. They're just not as committed as me. I'm really committed. Ask me in the Bible, I'll tell you. We get up another rung. We want the top of that ladder, and like I just said earlier, we almost want to push the other ladder over. We want to be so exalted at the expense of others. So instead of looking horizontally at others, we have to look to God. We have to lift our eyes up to Him. Isaiah 6, right? High and lifted up. We're supposed to look up and see how high God is. He is the infinite and we are finite. He is absolutely holy and we are unholy. That just changed the standard. 
our lair just fell apart. It just broke, crumbled in pieces. We're crushed in spirit. We also look ahead. Look up, look look ahead. Because who's ahead? Christ. We're following him. Our eyes are always on Jesus, and we're watching him, and we're listening to him saying, wow, Jesus, how can you talk like that? How can you do these things? You're not really showing exactly who you are. You're almost giving a false impression of yourself. That's what we think. Because he himself is so poor in spirit. We want to say, Jesus, show yourself, prove yourself more, promote yourself. Act like a king for crying out loud. You're a king, aren't you? Well, the king has become poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus took on poverty, became poor in spirit, so that we might become rich. Lastly, we need to judge and condemn any manifestations of pride. We are taught again by earthly kingdoms to coddle ourselves, to make ourselves comfortable. You see it on TV all the time. You deserve it. Stop spoiling others. Stop sacrificing so much, and it's time to spoil you. Pamper yourself. You have deserved this. And this all helps us to, in some sense, in our sinfulness, to continue to be soft on ourselves, but really harsh toward others. In actuality, it needs to be reversed. We need to look first at ourselves and deal harsh with us, and we need to learn to become gentle and merciful to others. Any manifestations of pride... Deal with it. If you're married, your spouse just might let you know about your pride. Are you going to accept that wound? Maybe somebody at church is going to let you know, did something wrong. Are you going to accept that wound? Are you going to go to work and dig that pride out? Manifestations of pride would include misusing God's gracious gifts taking credit and honor for all that we have. Instead of giving thanksgiving to God and acknowledging Him, we in some sense acknowledge ourselves, that we have made ourselves into something. Psalm 95, verse 2, Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Coming into His presence with thanksgiving, saying, God, all that I have, Anything I could ever imagine put on a list has come from you. And thanksgiving makes us grounded in reality. In some sense, you could almost say that if you understand this beatitude, your prayers throughout the day, your thoughts, your little phrases will be expressions of thanksgiving. 
if all we do are, is ever say, help me fix this, give me this, we're probably missing this. Poor in spirit would automatically mean being thankful because God is the source of all of it. And this means we don't use God get, God's gifts to pretend that we're on a higher ladder than others. That would spoil the gifts. It would violate God's intention. It would mock and defame him and insult him as the giver of those gifts. A second manifestation of pride would be an attitude of self-promotion. Believing yourself and promoting yourself as though you were actually rich of your own doing, and then you feel the need to promote yourself. If you start thinking about the debt that we have to God, how we stand before this great king for his throne, I don't think we want to promote ourselves when we're like that. God owes us nothing. Being proud says, God, you owe me this. You owe me this money. You owe me this relationship. You owe me this healing. You owe me this, this, and this. We believe in our pride that God owes us so many gifts, and we know how this works. <laughs> when it's our birthday or Christmas, right? And there's people in our lives, we have an expectation, don't we? Whether it's mom or dad, or son or daughter, or grandpa and grandma. Oh, don't leave me high and dry again now. We know. We have an expectation of what we think we should get from them. Don't we? This gift is owed me. That doesn't even make any sense. What do you mean this gift is owed me? You're never owed a gift. But yet we take on this mindset, not only with others, but with God. God, you owe me this gift. It is absolutely humbling, and I think I want to use the word humiliating, when you recognize that God owes you nothing but judgment. I don't know about you, but for me, I don't want to just be able to say those words. I want to feel it. I want to feel like a million-pound weight was on me and was going to crush me, that Christ took it for me that cursing of being in hell for eternity has been lifted off me because of Christ. When you get this, and it's more in your DNA, oh man, you just talk differently. You talk differently. You act differently. You are humbled at the fact that God has chosen to give you so many things and he might even use you. You just stood before him, broken, empty, tattered clothes, now he wants to dress you up in his righteousness, make you a son or a daughter of his. This affects everything. If in God's mercy, God should choose to give you a day of health, a good name, maybe a little bit of money, maybe a job, maybe you even get a chance to stand up front and sing or preach, or maybe even be given a position in a church. Your attitude is not, well, he's owed me anyway. I mean, look at who I am. No, you are humbled at the fact that God would choose to look your way and deposit 
this blessing into your life until we are more, more and more emptied out. We cannot be filled with Christ. Christ only fills what is empty. Blessed are you today if you feel empty. You feel empty, you are in a perfect spot. If you feel full and like you're overflowing and it's not related to God, get rid of yourself. The self that is filling up yourself. Empty out. Let Christ fill you. Let's pray. Lord, again, I pray as I pray many times, please don't leave us to ourselves. If we are the only doctor in the room of our lives, we'll end up killing ourselves. Not intentionally, but because of sin. We need the good physician Jesus to be our doctor, to tell us what is wrong, and then to go to work and fix us. We just need the doctoring of Jesus. So again, in your mercy, give us good gifts that would make us feel so empty but yet know that you are there filling us up with such hope and joy in Christ. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing, this kingdom of heaven, how it all works out. But it's right and it's good. And Jesus shows us all what it's about. So when I pray for all of us here that we are following Jesus. As we look ahead in our lives, we can see Jesus. He is very clear in our vision. We know exactly what he wants from us and we are seeking to do that. Pray for anybody here today, who, Lord, who has no vision of Jesus, or he is so blurry to them, or maybe they've even forgot, forgotten him. Lord, please bring Jesus to them, right in front of their faces, and show the glory of Jesus to them. Again, great King, we pray that you would have mercy on us. We have nothing, nothing to change your opinion of us. Only Christ. Again, we magnify your son. In Christ's name, amen.